brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. You, the people, the jury system sitting in judgment on Clay Shaw, represent the hope of humanity against government power. Do not forget your dying king. Show this world that this is still a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Nothing as long as you live will ever be more important. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where I promise we are concluding our very, very deep dive into Oliver Stone's JFK. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California, and excited to be diving into our last final uh, part of JFK. So much to discuss uh, as we wrap up this uh, this movie, getting into the court case and all the things that happened. And Steve, this is where all the research I think we did for the show will kind of bear some fruit because there is a lot that gets brought up in this court case that we are going to discuss. Well, and that's what's crazy about this movie. You know, we're in a th- with the director's cut. It's a three hour and like 15 minute movie of mm-hmm. which almost 50 minutes are a court case at the end. Right. I'm, I mean, that's massive. And I, and I wanted to, I was thinking about it. it. It's always interesting when we break these things into multiple parts, because of course, I think in between the time that we have these recordings and I was thinking about it and I thought we, you know, you had said in one of the, one of our parts, I don't remember which one, that really we, the audience are the jury here, that yeah. that's what Oliver Stone is doing. it. And I thought maybe before we go into this trial, yeah. that we could give ourselves sort of some jury instructions and sort of think about like, what's, what is this really about? What is, what is Jim Garrison trying to prove? What is Oliver Stone trying to prove? And then figure out if like, well, how are they doing it? What, how is the evidence working to do that job? And what's interesting is that although the trial starts, you know, 50 minutes before the end of the film, really Oliver Stone has been presenting us with evidence, or I'm going to put evidence in quotation marks (laughs) because some of it is very speculative. Speculation, yeah. Yeah, for a couple of hours already. And now we move into this trial. And the first thing, I would say that, the, in my opinion, the first thing that he needs to prove is not the first thing that Kevin Costner's Jim Garrison does in the trial. Right. Which is the first thing that he's actually trying to prove is whether or not there's a conspiracy. Yes. That's the first thing. The second thing, I would say is that he's trying to prove that Clay Shaw is directly connected and to some degree responsible for the conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. Yes. And then the third thing is both Jim Garrison and I would say even more so Oliver Stone is trying to prove what in fact that conspiracy is. Yes. Those are the those are the things we're going to examine. And I would say those are sort of like how we put our our scorecard on how well. Oliver Stone and Jim Garrison are doing in this trial. Yeah, I think, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, we have to be aware of, and what you bring up is, I think, an excellent way to approach it, is we have to be aware of what is uh, Garrison trying to prove 
and what is Oliver Stone trying to prove? Right. Those are the two things, you know, the three areas you mentioned are the areas we're going to explore, but we have to we have to look at it through the prism of what Oliver Stone is trying to do and what Jim Garrison is trying to do, and I don't think they necessarily cross streams most of the time when we get through this whole court case because the way the court case is told in the movie is actually actually chronologically incorrect to the way the court case actually went about um when it happened uh, um back in ni- in the 19- late 1960s well and there's an interesting too which is that Costner Garrison says in the film like he knows he has a lousy case mm-hmm. like that's you know that's said over and over again that the case is weak right. and what he says is Basically something like there's two parts to this, yep. you know, that there's the tri- the actual trial in the court of law and then there's the trial in the court of public opinion. Yeah. And that and that he is hoping that something falls loose in this trial to help him win the case. But he's also hoping that changes the conversation, in the court of public opinion. And I think we are the court of public opinion. Here we are 60 years later. Yeah. Still trying to figure this thing out. Yeah. And I think the I think films like this, Steve, are like. Uh, what do you call it? Master's thesis type of thing. I've never written one, but I know people who have stressed out in writing one and it's a lot of research. It's a lot of work. And the way you construct your points throughout the opening parts of your thesis and the middle parts of your thesis all lead to the final part of your thesis where you're bringing everything together to in essence um, show a very uh, researched, well thought out, educated and defensible position on a subject or on a topic and this is this is one of those movies where the script very much feels like a thesis project because we're mm. all leading to this court case where all the points and everything that stone has done as a director and everything the writers have done to put you in a frame of mind to accept certain things happening in the court case through the prism with which either garrison or stone wants you to see them through right. If you've if you've fallen under the spell of the film up until this point. Uh, absolutely. And I and I feel like I would be remiss in not mentioning one more thing, which is that some part of our conversations on JFK and also some of the current movies that are about true stories led you and I to do a short, which we just released on yes. Patreon, exploring what are the responsibilities of a filmmaker when they're tackling actual historical events. And obviously. From all of these conversations on JFK, you and I had some very strong opinions on that, and it's a really good short, and you just have to go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles, and for just five bucks a month, you could sign up and you get access not only to that short, but to all of our shorts, which can you believe, John, I didn't number all of them, where we're now well over 200 shorts that are available on Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) I believe, I believe. That is the first live sound effect that has ever been used on the Sin Files. <laughs> that there was awesome. 200, 200 <laughs> uh, shorts episodes, which I think is awesome. And, you know, we one of the things that, we, and I know we got to get on with the episode, but I also want to stress one of the things Steve and I made a very strong commitment to a couple of years ago is to really, uh, or, you know, over a year ago, is to focus on these shorts and to really d- deliver every week shorts, uh, multiple shorts sometimes, depending on the week. Uh, to our patrons so they feel that they're getting the bang for the buck and they're getting more from us in terms of our points of views on issues and things going on in the world of film and so very proud of us to keep doing that and very uh, proud of our patrons to keep sending us such fantastic topics for us to dive into and certainly most recently the fmks and all of that have been fantastic so great to see that and and, and we're committed to doing even more of them as we go forward uh, here uh, on the patreon 
uh, for our Cinephiles patrons. I don't know about you, but I think it's time we finally take this case to court. And the way we lead into the trial, right, we just got finished seeing Sissy Spacek and Kevin uh, Costner making out in bed. We now have the shot from above watching them walk in. It's classic shot of them walking into the courtroom. And John Williams' music is really epic and uh, American and powerful and justice looking. Uh, and I love all of that as we go into the courtroom. Please rise. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. The criminal district court, Wallings Parish, Section H, is now in session. Honorable Judge Edward A. Haggerty Jr. presiding. Please be seated. And I think the casting here is really great for the prosecuting or the defendant's defense attorney because we've never seen that guy before, but he's got this huge burly size to him, a certain demeanor to him. And the judge is this crotchety old dude, comes in smoking a cigarette, can, has kind of an interesting accent, an interesting delivery, aggressive delivery in his back and forth, calls Garrison Jimbo, those kinds of things that you sense from a Southern judge. So I like that we're getting the color of the trial through these characters in the trial. And the first thing that Garrison goes after is trying to connect Clay Shaw to the conspiracy. And he does this with his very first witness, Kevin Bacon, Willie O'Keefe, who identifies him as Clay Bertrand. That's Clay Bertrand. That's the man I saw, David Ferris. That's who you say you saw. And right away, we are gonna take down these witnesses. A confessed homosexual. Convicted of pandering and solicitation. But you're right, Steve. Immediately, Garrison is met with resistance on a number of things, and some of these testimonies are being destroyed by the defense by bringing up the character of these witnesses. He was at the Pontchartrain wall with the man who shot the president. A heroin addict injecting himself at the wall, barely conscious of his surroundings. And then, of course, we get to John Candy. The cat's stealing you. The oyster's shucking you, I told him. You got the right ta-ta, but the wrong ho-ho. <laughs> that makes no sense. All right. <laughs> it's also a direct quote from the actual guy. Those are his <laughs> exact words. <laughs> and then we go to, this is only in the director's cut, we have Ron Rifkin, great character actor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who comes out and identifies very clearly that he met David Ferry and Clay Shaw. The defense comes up and asks... Is it not also true that you fingerprinted your daughter when she went to Louisiana State University? Yes, sir, I did. And is it not also true that you fingerprinted her when she returned at the end of the semester? Yes, I did. Why? Well, I wanted to make sure that she was the same girl I sent away. <laughs> so I totally understand why that was cut out of the theatrical right. <laughs> edition, but it is a very funny bit. Yeah. Um, by the way, Oliver Stone thinks... That this and this is a real witness. This is this yeah. is actual testimony that was in the case. He believes that this was a planted witness mm. by the government to intentionally torpedo Garrison's case. Wow. Yeah. I mean, again, right? What do we hear nowadays? Oh, they planted people at the January sixth insurrection. Those are actually government people, you know. So it's it's been such an interesting experience to watch this movie again now and hear some of the things from my point of view that I believed and still kind of believe, to be honest, um, and see it uh, being uh, said by other people whose conspiracy theories I think are absolutely crackpot. So it's a fascinating experience. Yet again, when you mentioned the Ron Rifkin stuff, totally cool. And again, this is also an excellent point. And this is you know something that I, I want to stress again. People say this film is manipulative, blah, blah, blah. No, there are a lot of people in the movie, director's cut or otherwise, 
that are there to undercut Jim Garrison or counter Jim Garrison or call Jim Garrison out. This is not just a propaganda piece. There are people in the film who question him or there are situations in the film that make you question this person's ability to bring this case. And if this person, Ron Rifkin, is a a, a witness for the uh, for the prosecution, he comes off crackpot. And so that makes you question Garrison a little bit. Why would a director put that in there if he's not also trying to maybe call things into question a little bit on both sides of this issue? I don't know. I, I, I for me, the, 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 the overall tonnage of material, <laughs> like your point is true. There are people that question it. Bill questions it a little bit. Obviously, Sissy Spacek's character yes. questions it a little bit, but the constant refrain of images that are hitting you over and over and over again, seem overwhelming to me. Right. That's it's a fair. It, yeah. Like, like I don't go, there are movies where I go, man, where do I, how do I, like we talk about a movie like network, you know, there's yeah. like all sorts of things all over the place and you go, well, I don't know how I feel. And I don't know exactly what I think. I don't think that's this movie, you know, <laughs> points that's, not, that's not how I feel coming out of this. And then, and, and then this is one of the key things. And again, this is the, we're trying to prove that Clay Shaw is Clay Bertrand yeah. and that through his connections with David Ferry and Lee Oswald and all these other people, that he is in fact part of the conspiracy. And we're yeah. about to come up on a crucial piece of evidence, which is we call up the police officer that did the intake with Clay Shaw. Yeah. And right away, the judge says, I'm going to have to ask the jury to leave the courtroom. Gentlemen, will you please rise and follow what? me? And the judge shuts down this piece of evidence, which is that Clay Shaw, when asked if he had an alias, said Clay Bertrand. The defendant did not have his lawyer present when asked. It's from Tom Immemore. It's been standing booking procedure to ask an alias. I call she him as that. I see And this actually happened, by the way, people who are listening to us. This is actually what happened. There was trans there. You can actually download the transcript of the entire trial. The entire trial is huh. available online. If you want to go deep into this and read and see the differences between what goes on in the movie and what goes on in the actual trial, the judge absolutely ordered people out of the courtroom, absolutely questioned the police officer's integrity, and absolutely pointed out that there were no lawyers present uh, for Clay Shaw to be able to um, uh, defend himself or not answer that question if he'd uh, used another alias, which any lawyer would have told him not to do, not to admit uh, in the process. So although it may be frustrating because the judge seems like he's very much against Garrison, that is actually what happened in the trial. What's interesting to me, by the way, is that this is that the Miranda ruling, when you say I'm going to give you, read you your Miranda rights or yeah. Mirandize you, which is what you hear from cops in every cop show since this happened, you right. know, that you have the right to remain silent, you, you have an attorney, all that stuff. That decision is 1966. Ooh, one this, year, and this case is one year after that. That's right. And what I don't know is when was Clay Shaw brought in? Right. Was he brought in before the Miranda decision was made or was he brought in after? Because he was brought in a long time before this trial. Yes. You know, like those things. But I, but I don't know the exact answer. And 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 what Garrison says is, looks, it's standard procedure to have a lawyer present, not to have a lawyer presence for this basic intake. Of course, he had the right to an attorney, but the judge denying this. And there's a huge reaction. He says, I'm ruling it in it. Well, that's our case. If that's your case, you didn't have a case. I wouldn't believe anything Habergar said anyway. I can't believe you're saying this in the courtroom. Well, I am saying it. Bring in the jury. And in the actual statement in the trial, he says, I do not believe Officer Habgehorse. If Officer Habgehorse is telling the truth, and I seriously doubt it, I don't believe him anyway. Those are actual words 
right. from the judge in the trial. So they are adhering in some instances in this uh, uh, montage of court scenes to what actually happened in the trial. Of course, Stone is cherry picking certain moments so that you feel like Garrison is fighting the government and a possibly a corrupt or bought judge in this situation. What do you think? And there's no way you can answer this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What do you think, based on what you know, the odds are that Officer Haberhals or whatever the hell his name is yeah. uh, made this up or was pressured by Jim Garrison to make this up? I think it's zero. I think this is a zero situation uh, percent that he did this. I, I don't think that he was a guy who was pressured by the district attorney's office at all. I think he, you know, there is there are upstanding people who serve in our police uh, and no matter what decade it is. And um, uh, I think he was telling the truth and wasn't allowed to by the judge um, for the reasons that the judge laid out. But yeah, no, I, I think the guy was telling the truth because nothing in the movie as well portrays him as a guy with an agenda or ulterior motive. He's simply oh, no. just yeah. taking information and asking the questions. That's all he's doing. So, yeah. so I, I, I wouldn't put it exactly as zero. I would put it at a low percentage, but there are certainly times that officers have falsified evidence. Oh, you, know, that is a, you know, that is a thing that has happened. And I don't really know what was going on in the garrison office or his relationship with the police force. But I, so I wouldn't put it at zero, but I put it real low. Yeah. Like, it, it, cause it's such a, a, a basic thing. But it also goes to, man, he does have a weak case, you know? Right. Like, yes. Th this is so thin. But that's out. We bring the jury back in uh, and we put uh, Clay Bertrand on the stand. Mm. And based on what we know, and again, I'll put no in quotation marks, <laughs> he lies his ass off on the stand. Everything he says is a lie. He asks, And have you ever met David Ferry? No. Wouldn't even know what he looked like if it hadn't been for the pictures I've been shown. Did you ever use the alias Clay Bertrand? No. Tommy Lee Jones is so good throughout yeah. this whole thing. And Coster's reaction is... Well, a very great actor has just given us a great performance, Your Honor, but we are nowhere closer to the truth. At the next moment, he had asked uh, Liz if she was going to come bring the kids to the courtroom. And in the next scene, there she is with the kids... That and there's a look here, and I wonder if you get the same thing from this look from Costner, which is this is where he's about to introduce the Zapruder film. Yeah. And here's my interpretation is he looks knowing that he's about to show a film where a guy's head gets shot and his brains come out, mm. that his look is like, I'm really glad you brought the kids, but why did you have to bring the kids right now? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've always seen in that look. Oh, interesting. Yeah. No, I've seen the look as, and this is why film is so great, because you can take different interpretations. I've always seen the look as one of pride that she showed up to, and it was the last piece of the puzzle that she believes in him now, you know, because that had been such a big deal just a few scenes ago that she didn't believe in him, and that she brought the kids to see their dad at work, like maybe a sense of pride that they're coming to see him present this case. This is a really important historic and momentous case. And remember earlier in the film, he had yelled at her and said, like, you know, I'm doing this for our children, for our future, so they don't live in a country where a coup can right. like this can occur. So that's how I took it. But I can totally see how you how you could get that look or get that interpretation of his look. 
I agree. And I agree with you. This is what's fun about film, mm -hmm. you know, is that all we have is a look and a cut. And right. then we go like, okay, what does this mean? But now we're going to, I really think at this point in the film and in the trial is when we're really going to pay off all the hard work and all the heavy lifting Oliver Stone did throughout this movie by showing you all these footages and little quick clips of the shooting, of his recreation of the shooting, of Dealey Plaza, where all the people were. And now he's going to bring all those back. And because they're familiar and they're intercut with uh, Garrison's speech, it really has, it's really, really powerful in how he tells his story. Yeah, and I think this is chronologically, as I said earlier, out of, uh, out of, out of order chronologically in the court case because he delivered a 42-minute, 15-page opening statement mm. to the jury to start the trial, which we don't see, right? But I assume that what we're showing here is a lot of elements of what um, he had in this opening statement to lay the groundwork for what he was going to um, reveal to the jury and uh, put as evidence into the record uh, in this case. So I love the way this comes about. It's smart the way he uh, Stone has constructed this and the writers have constructed this because they lay the groundwork that everything's against him. They bring in the support of his wife and his kids. And here he is now ready to really fight the uphill battle, kind of like the the Battle of the Bastards in, in, in Game of Thrones. He's now pulling out his sword with the hordes of enemies coming at him, standing alone like Jon Snow did in that scene, to tell the truth, or what he sees as the truth, about what happened. And uh, what follows next, Steve, is one of the greatest um, uh, sequences in any movie ever. I, I agree. It's great. It's interesting that it's a different order because remember when I was kind of trying to lay out here, the things he had to prove, I said, the first thing I think he has to prove is that there's a conspiracy, right? But in this film, that's not the first thing he tries to prove. The first thing he tries to prove is that Clay Shaw is Clay Bertrand and that he's connected to all these people. Yeah. And I wonder if the reason that stone changed the structure is that that is the area where Garrison really fails. Yes. Good point. Right. And so yes. puts that first. Right. So because he doesn't want to end with a failure. Yeah. Good point, Steve. Yep. Prove there was a conspiracy involving Clay Shaw. We must first prove that there was more than one man involved in the assassination. To do that, we must look at the Zapruder film, which my office has subpoenaed. The American public has not seen that film because it has been kept locked away in a vault for the last five years in the Time Life building in New York City. There's a reason for that. Watch. I can't imagine the the real trauma of like seeing this film for the. I mean, I remember how I felt in the movie theater watching this film for the first time. Yes, yes. Because I had seen clips of the Zubruder film, of course, but I had never seen the whole thing uh, until I saw this movie. Um, and again, we have Garrison look over at his family. No, and for me, it's like, I'm about to show this movie now. And they play it. And that headshot happens. And the reaction around the courtroom is exactly my reaction when I saw it in the movie theater. It is really disturbing. The Warren Commission thought they had an open and shut case. Three bullets, one assassin. But two unpredictable things happened that day that made it virtually impossible. One... The 8mm home movie taken by Abraham Zapruder while standing near the grassy knoll. And two, the third wounded man, James Tay, who was nicked by a fragment while standing near the triple underpass. So I always forget about this bystander that was nicked by a fragment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just spoil it right away. 
that what the Warren Commission says happened with one shooter does not seem believable to me at all. I agree. It yeah. isn't. But there was more um, than one shooter. There's nothing I'm more certain of when it comes to the Kennedy assassination than that. Yeah. And and because what the Zapruder film does, and this is what Garrison explains, is it creates a timeline. 5.6 yeah. seconds. We know there are only three shots fired, and therefore everything had to happen within those 5.6 seconds with only three bullets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he goes through what those bullets are. And and again, what Stone is doing is showing us in multiple ways. One, he's showing things happen on the Zapruder film, the actual Zapruder film. Yeah. Two, he's showing shots of his recreation of the assassination with, you know, the cars and all the stuff that's going on. I, it, three, we've got a diagram of Dealey Plaza, mm-hmm. so he can show you where everything is. And then four, he's got two of his uh, assistants sitting down to actually model what's happening with this magic bullet, which we're going to yeah. get to. So this is, you know, both Garrison and Stone using all of this visual and auditory material hmm. to reinforce the explanation that Garrison is giving in the scene. That leaves just two bullets. And we know one of them was the fatal headshot that killed Kennedy. So now a single bullet remains. A single bullet now has to account for the remaining seven wounds in Kennedy and Conley. But rather than admit to a conspiracy or investigate further, the Warren Commission chose to endorse the theory put forth by an ambitious junior counselor, Arlen Specter, one of the grossest lies ever forced on the American people. What's so weird is like in mid-90s, Arlen Specter is a really powerful and well-known senator. Yes, Republican <laughs> senator, yes, yes. So dropping his name at this moment had a lot of residence in 91 when we saw this movie. That's on purpose, yeah. We've come to know it as the magic bullet theory. The magic bullet enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck, wound number two. And as he does this, we're seeing a diagram of the magic bullet, and then we're also seeing him track the magic bullet through his two models, you know, his assistants, showing where it goes, and he does make this look completely ridiculous. It stops in midair <laughs> for 1.6 seconds and then turns right. Um, and I think, you know, occasionally when we talk about films, Steve, we add stuff as a for separate post on Facebook. And one of our listeners uh, tweeted at both of us the Seinfeld version of this, which I, I don't know if you got a, you got the chance to watch that scene. I hadn't seen in, seen the scene in forever and forgot that it was a, a Seinfeld episode. June 14th. 1987, Mets, Phillies. But it was Newman and um, Kramer talking about how Keith Hernandez, who was a player for the New York Mets at the time, spat on them as they were walking by, or they thought he, he spat on them as they were walking by, and everything is shot like the Zapruder film in color. The spit then proceeds to ricochet off the temple, striking Newman between the third and the fourth rip. <laughs> The spit then came off the rib, made a right turn, hitting Newman in the right wrist, causing him to drop his baseball cap. And it is hilarious. And they find out that it was someone on the grassy hill who spat at them, (laughs) not Keith Hernandez, by the end when Keith Hernandez shows back up in the episode to explain what happened. So uh, it's about a five-minute clip that this person sent us that's on YouTube, and I think it'd be fun to put it on Facebook as a companion piece to this conversation in this scene in the movie. 
We absolutely should. And what's so funny, which I had forgotten, mm-hmm. is that it's Wayne Knight is one of those two models. Yeah. Oh, great points. Scene, and he's in this. And he's in the Seinfeld scene. Right. Son of a gun. I had, and he and he modeled the spinning shooting just like he modeled the magic bullet theory in this sequence here too. Wow. I hadn't even put those two together. I consider those two separate people. <laughs> wow. So so. A, we have this ridiculous story of what this bullet has to do. And, and to be clear, bullets do do crazy things in combat. They, they do absolutely bounce and ricochet and then get a spin on them that t- makes them occur. Those they, things do happen. But this bullet has to do a lot of stuff. That's some bullet. Anyone who's been in combat will tell you never in the history of gunfire has there been a bullet this ridiculous. And in particular, it's this crazy thing this bullet does combined with the pristine quality of the bullet they found at Parkland hospital. Right. Right. That that's where you go like, hold on. Like it's just way too much. It strains credulity that this is possible. And it's also, there's all sorts of stuff about the chain of evidence with this particular bullet. It just pops up. How do people know that's the bullet? Like they just happen to find a bullet and you go like, therefore this must be the bullet that did this thing. Like, how do you know that? That just seems really tough to believe. Yet the government says it can prove it with some fancy physics in a nuclear laboratory. Of course they can. Theoretical physics can prove that an elephant can hang from a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. I don't think theoretical physics actually can prove that. <laughs> I, I almost saw Neil deGrasse Tyson's eye roll, eyes roll back into his head when I saw this scene again. But I, that image has never left my head. Uh, ever since I saw this movie, the idea of an elephant with its tail tied around a daisy hanging off a cliff for whatever reason. <laughs> and, and of course, he shows uh, other bullets that have been fired through bone, and none of them look like the magic bullet. I mean, to do what it did, the bullet could not have come out pristine. No effing way, man. And once you conclude the magic bullet could not create all seven of those wounds, you have to conclude that there was a fourth shot and a second rifleman. And if there was a second rifleman, and by definition, there had to be a conspiracy. And as he says this, we see someone aiming and f- hear the firing. And again, this this goes deep to me into the psychology of filmmaking, which is it's not just saying we're not just telling you some information. We're reinforcing what we're telling you with visuals and with audio. Mm. And those things punctuate the statement by Jim Garrison in a way that didn't happen in the courtroom but happens for us, the jury, as you had said, in the movie theater. So this is two of the points that Garrison had to make. One is, is there a conspiracy? Which means that there's more than one person involved. It's not just, that's all we had to do. There was more than one person. It's not just Oswald. And two, that conspiracy involves Clay Shaw. How do you feel that Garrison is doing on point one, whether there is a conspiracy? I think he's doing an excellent job on proving whether there was a conspiracy, or the possibility of a conspiracy, right? But I think he's doing a terrible job on the Clay Shaw side of things. That's what I think. Yeah, I I, I think he's I actually think he's doing an an exceptional. I would say it's more than possibility for me. I feel like there's a probability there's a conspiracy. And yeah, I don't think Clay. We have so little evidence on Clay Shaw. Yeah. 51 witnesses, gentlemen of the jury, thought they heard shots coming from the grassy knoll, which is to the right of the president first we go through the witnesses and we kind of see their faces and we hear you know things like hearing hey mr president again right behind gene hill and mary mormon brings you back into that space as you're seeing those witnesses 
Each of these key witnesses has no doubt whatsoever one or more shots came from behind the picket fence. 26 trained medical personnel at Parkland Hospital saw with their own eyes the back of the president's head blasted out. Dr. Peters. We go into a little bit of the autopsy, describing the wound, describing the portion of the brain that was missing. And, you know, and we talk about exit wounds and entrance wounds. Not one of the civilian doctors who examined the president at Parkland Hospital regarded his throat wound as anything but a wound of entry. Because the basic rule is where the bullet goes in is a little tiny hole and where it goes out is a big hole. And so the wound in the front of his throat looks like an entry wound, but it can't be an entry wound if he was shot from behind from the book depository. And again, pay attention, the way he vacillates between color and black and white, I think is Mm. really important to see. Remember, we've kind of established that black and white is speculation. And when we see, and I don't mean the black and white footage that's actual newsreel footage, I mean the black and white stuff that he shoots in the film that are scenes in the film, you can see the scenes with the um, autopsy people and you see these nefarious um, uh, people who are, who are military, who are around the autopsy and who are uh, telling, what the doc- telling the doctors what to do, telling them how to look at this stuff and really kind of corrupting their um, interpretation, their analysis or influencing them to come to some conclusion. This is speculation. This is not 100% fact of what happened. This is what Stone is imagining happened based on some of the testimony that he has read or used here in this in these sequences. And so it's to make you feel, and John Williams' music is fantastic during the sequence as well, Steve, because that sense of dread uh, is pulsating throughout every one of those musical beats uh, throughout this sequence. The dun, 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 all lying underneath, just making you feel like making you scared as you watch this, knowing how powerful we've all believed the government can be when it's in the wrong hands. And you sense that palpably coming through these opening sequences as they're showing you what, what seems to be the beginning of the, um, of the conspiracy coming into place to control the narrative about what happened in Dallas. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the cinephiles new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Steve, and as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. And I always think we have to go back to separating 
what seems to be a fact and mm-hmm. what where the speculation starts. And like the idea that the autopsy and the entire way the chain of evidence and in particular mm-hmm. the body worked was messed up, that seems to me to be a fact. Like, yes, yes. So the, the way this was handled is just crazy. There's no particular, you know, and, and particularly the more important the crime, the more careful you should be with the evidence. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. this seems to be the opposite. Yeah. But the way that Garrison says it is where we get into some crazy speculations because he says, But then the body was illegally moved to Washington for the autopsy. Because when a coup d'etat occurred, there's a big difference between an autopsy that is performed by civilian doctors and one that is performed by military doctors under order. And you see the sequence where, again, in black and white, where they, as some some doctor tries to stop the federal government from taking the body, and they, these Secret Service guys in black and white again, immediately descend on the doctor to get him out of the way. Like, fuck you, we're taking the coffin, we're taking the body. That kind of thing. We have no idea if that actually happened, but Stone has to really drive the point home that this was a very rushed uh, conspiracy here. We don't know if it happened or how it happened. Just the tone of voice and the body positions, even if they said the same, hey, no, I'm sorry, we're taking this body, as you know, like the way it said changes the reality. And it's also because he just said in a courtroom that this was a coup d'etat. Yes. I mean, this is like, this is a big. That's a big statement. And then he rolls right on to saying, The departure of Air Force One from Love Field that Friday afternoon was not so much a takeoff as it was a getaway with the newly sworn in president. Objection, Your Honor. Sustained. See, and this is where we go to, because here's, it is, it is possible mm-hmm. that what Stone is saying is correct, which was, this was an extremely well-planned assassination made from within the government yeah. and that Part of that was a laid out plan for them to take the body, for them to manufacture evidence, for them to mess up the autopsy. And this, all these people were executing this plan. Yes. It's also the possibility that they were fucking freaked out and didn't know what to do and made mistakes with different people having different ideas of what to do that were running into each other that were causing this investigation to be a complete mess. Right. Because there are, there are plans in place for when a president is if there's an assassination attempt on a president. There are not many plans in place for what happens after the assassination attempt is successful, right? I mean, there's, I'm sure there's like all kinds of stuff that you think you're supposed to do, but in the emotionally charged, uh, freaking out situation here, um, any number of mistakes can occur, any number of mistakes can happen. Lincoln died, why? Because they carried him physically to that bed and that accelerated his death uh, because of how they rattled his body and the blood and everything like that. And so by the time the doctors got to him, they couldn't help him or save him because he had been moved because people were freaking out that someone they loved had been shot in the back of the head in the theater. So it's those things that you just don't know when, until something happens, how you're going to react. Uh, And so it's very possible that this is just a, um, a collection of missteps by a number of people in positions of power or, it possibly was a coup. Yeah. Or or it's possible it was a coup. <laughs> well, that is, I mean, this is, well, it's so funny that here we are at 60 years later. Yeah. I, I, I know I said at the beginning, I'm going to say it again. We're going to get to the end of this fourth epic long exploration of this movie. And I'm still not going to have an answer. Right, right. Of what, of what I think really happened. Mm. 
Um, needless to say, as he's talking about coups and the president, the new president in a getaway car or a getaway plane, there is a lot of objections, basically all of which are sustained. Yeah. Uh, and we go into the autopsy. And by the way, this is real footage of Kennedy's body. Yes. Intercut with a, a model and some of the things where the camera is moving and stuff that is that is fake. But you are actually looking at, you know, President Kennedy's, uh, you know, corpse. Yeah, his autopsy photos. Yeah, which yeah. were, I think, were just released a few year, a years, a few years before the film came out. So people had them and were part of conspiracy books all through the eighties uh, and what have you. Orders are being given to change how they're uh, doing the autopsy. Why did Colonel Fink not dissect the tract of the bullet wounds? Obvious trick. Well, yeah, I heard Doctor Hume stating that. That's enough. That's enough. It's duly noted. A doctor is moving forward with the autopsy and a general stand. And again, the, when you look at this room, it is a crowded room yes. filled with army people, filmed with guys in suits. We don't know who any of these people are. You must understand it was quite crowded. And when you were called in circumstances like that to look at the wound of the president who is dead, you don't look around a lot to ask people for their names and who they are. And one of the generals basically shuts down part of the autopsy. Who's in charge here? I am. He grabs one of the doctors and goes, I think we've seen, I think we know what this is. Let's move on. Right. And yeah. um, again, this is all in black and white and it's smoky and it's, as you said, Steve, so well, it's crowded, which adds to the sense of like uh, pressure, like they're being controlled by the military. And as the witness says, there were others, there were admirals. Oh, there were admirals. Oh, yes. And when you are a lieutenant colonel in the army, you just follow orders. And I don't know if that's true that a bunch of admirals were in the room dictating the autopsy. But that's certainly what Garrison is speculating. I do think we can be fairly confident that this was botched. Mm -hmm. President Johnson orders the blood-soaked limousine filled with bullet holes and clues to be immediately washed and rebuilt. Do you know if that order came from Johnson? I, I know it came from his the White House, but it, it I think it's it came days later. Mm. And so there's a difference there in the way they're presenting it. In that, because the way they're presenting in the movie, it made it seem as if Johnson was like, get rid of the evidence, get rid of the evidence. It wasn't that. It was more a matter of like, well, they, they, I think the people had poured through it already and then they had it cleaned and whatever. So I don't think it's quite the way uh, Garrison is presenting it. So, yeah. You, you know what I think changes this too is mm -hmm. that in 91, there had been decades of police shows. Yes. That hadn't happened in the 60s. And watching it today, we have thousands of police procedurals csis and laws and orders and all these things showing us how this is supposed to be done yeah and so then we look at this and go well this is fucking ridiculous like how could they do all those things but so a lot of these things probably hadn't been established at yeah. that time you know right, right we didn't have dna evidence like what were you gonna you know so the, what are you gonna get out of the blood you know like the 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 levels of investigation have changed and when we finally get a court order to examine president kennedy's brain in the national archives in the hopes of finding from which direction the bullet came from, we're told by the government, your government, that the president's brain has disappeared. That's one of the craziest ones. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, the president's brain. It's, I know, like Ava Perón's body disappeared in Argentina. Like, there's some weird ones like this. But like, wait, someone stole Kennedy's brain? Like, yeah. what happened to? Ke I, and I don't know what happened. Do you know what happened to Kennedy's brain? No, I don't know. It ended up in, if I'm to believe uh, Bubba Hotep, it <laughs> ended up in Ozzie Davis's head uh, as a black man in a uh, living facility 
uh, with Elvis Presley. That's, <laughs> that's what happens in that movie is they, he thinks that they've put Kennedy's brain inside of him. And so he is uh, now a uh, older black man in a living facility, which is hilarious. And then Garrison lays it on thick. That's not all that's disappeared, gentlemen. With it, I think the concept of justice. Objection, your honor. Um, again, more objections. <laughs> what do you think of the moment? It seems like such a kind of sports movie moment when Lou shows up and he and Costner smile at each other. I, I think this is a product of 1990s filmmaking, and it is certainly a product of Oliver Stone, who at times can be over modeling, can be over cheesy with these things. Cause it's really funny because it's also the same guy that made Natural Born Killers, I think a year later or within the same year or a couple of years later. And so it's fascinating to see him default to this kind of epic cheesy moment of, hey, we're back together, we're friends again kind of thing, um, because I don't see the logic of it. But other than to reaffirm that Garrison is telling the truth. First, you have the one person who is has been in conflict from the beginning, that's his wife. She shows up with, her, with their son. Uh, and then you bring in the other person who had conflicts with him, and that was uh, um, Lou. Lou comes back as a way to kind of reaffirm that uh, Garrison is telling the truth. I think it's a way that subconsciously subconsciously works on the viewer that you're supposed to believe Garrison and things he's saying now. I think it's one of those things that works great in the script. And I Mm -hmm. totally understand why it's there. This is his closest uh, professional relationship. They have a falling out. The guy shows up for support at the end. Structurally, that makes perfect sense. I think, and this is the thing about making movies is for me, this is, this is not what the movie is. Yeah. I don't have it. He, I think Stone f- thinks I'm going to have an emotional reaction to this moment. I really don't. I don't think it, it – it doesn't detract. I mean, it's not a problem with the film. But it's just like emotionally, I'm not – I don't give a shit about the Lou-Jim Garrison relationship at this juncture right. in the court case. I, that's not where my brain is. My brain is in you know the Kennedy assassination. Right, right. So what really happened that day? Let's just for a moment speculate, shall we? <laughs> Which – to say we're going to speculate, we are about to go into one of the longest speeches in Hollywood history. This is the, the it's funny. The whole film has been a two and a half hour speculation up to this point, and now we're getting now Garrison. You know, now we're going to speculate, which is hilarious. Yeah. So we go into the the setup. You know that there's and again, all of these could just be random events that happen. There's someone who had a seizure. Which, but for him, the guy who had a seizure is intentionally there to distract the police, Mm. making it easier for shooters to get into their positions. And then he, what's so interesting is that Garrison, and I don't know how much of this is Garrison and how much of this is Stone, Mm -hmm. but he gives an extremely specific plan of exactly what each group was doing and what how they were doing it. You know, B team. One rifleman and one spotter with the headset and access to the building moves into the low floor of the Daltex building. By the way, Oliver Stone says this is all speculation. Yeah, yeah, of course. And he describes them moving into position. He describes how what their radio contact is. He describes what the B team is doing, what the C team is doing behind the picket fence above the grassy knoll. And he has evidence for none of this. 10 to 12 men, three teams, three shooters. The triangulation of fire, Clay Shaw and David Ferry discussed too much before. So this is his only connection to Clay Shaw. Mm-hmm. And what's so funny is when we talked about this scene where Willie O'Keefe is in the room when David Ferry goes off talking about uh, killing Kennedy. Yeah. We said then 
that we don't know what was said in that scene. That's a scene written in a script by Oliver Stone, you know? So like the connection is uh, the only thing I know about Clay or, or believe about Clay Shaw is that he used a fake name in order to have gay uh, relationships with various people in the French quarter. Yeah. You know, like, and I particularly in the sixties, but even today, I perfectly understand why someone would cover that up or want to lie about it. Well, I think it was illegal in Louisiana at that time. Sure it was. Yeah. So even more so. And a lot of the people who accuse Garrison of being um, irresponsible with this case um, accused him of going after him, just like Sissy Spacek does, because uh, Clay was homosexual uh, and um, outed him in the courtroom when that had not been public knowledge, other than obviously certain people in the gay section and the gay quarter of uh, there in New Orleans. So, you know, there are absolutely, if you go back and look at it with, um, uh, how can I say this, with uh, unbiased eyes, you can see fault on Garrison's side as much as you can see fault on uh, Clay Shaw's or the government side on this thing. Well, and it's also, like, we do know that Lee Oswald, as a young man, was trained by David Ferry. We, yes. We, we know that connection is true. We saw Lee Oswald as part of Operation Mongoose training the Cubans, but that he was inserted there. We have no evidence that he was there at that time. Right. We hear that Willie O'Keefe met a guy that looked like Lee Oswald. Yeah. He says he recognizes him, but it's pretty thin evidence, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, the, like the actual connection, even if we say that Clay Shaw and David Ferry had a relationship of some kind that he's lying about. Yeah. And even if they talked, even if they did talk about wanting the president to die or how easy it would be to kill a president. I mean, to be honest, yeah. you and I have very, very strong political opinions about mm-hmm. a prominent political figure. Sure. And maybe it's possible, and I'm not saying we've ever had this conversation, mm. that we might have had a conversation about, man, it would be kind of better off if that guy wasn't around. I've never you know, that. I don't no. know what you're talking about. I, I never, and I don't believe there's any evidence that we've ever had a conversation like that. I would never but, say that. Yeah. But even if there were such a conversation, <laughs> which many, many people have had about many, many politicians in sure. the past, sure. that conversation is not evidence that we participated in a conspiracy to murder yeah. that person. You're right. Yeah, exactly. That's just evidence that we talked about. That's something. protected under the First Amendment right. You, If you want to say something like that, of course, yeah. Well, I I actually believe it is a federal crime to talk about assassinating the president. I actually it, believe that today is a crime. Yeah, and and but I haven't. Uh, we haven't uh, talked. But we've about never it. done that. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> we've said like we'd like him to leave the political landscape for sure, but not any anything like that. Yeah. So so again, like the the connection to Clay Shaw is so weak mm-hmm. that he has here, but what he's establishing as he's talking through how the shooting was set up filmically is working great. Yes. Yeah. I mean, stone does a wonderful job directing and editing these sequences to make you believe. And by the way, he's interspersing speculation with facts, you know, going back to the autopsy, general Curtis LeMay was Mm. actually in the autopsy Mm. and he hated Kennedy and was the vice presidential running mate with George Wallace in 1968. So might have him, might he have had some influence on this whole situation? It's all there to speculate. And the multiple Oswalds, that was in a memorandum from J. Edgar Hoover. So right. stuff came out that uh, supported some of the speculation comp- accompanied with actual facts 
that went on in this movie. And three members of the Warren Commission refused to back up that report. And one person, one of the members actually came out and did a whole piece where he did not agree with the conclusions of the Warren Commission and uh, spoke about it publicly on a news uh, uh, news report. Yeah. And now we're moving into the actual assassination. Yeah. He says, They've walked the plaza. They know every inch. They've calibrated their sights. They practice on moving targets. How do you know what they practiced on or if they calibrated their <laughs> You know, it's like you don't, you made up these people. <laughs> but I think this is why the construct of, of leading to a court case works so well for a movie like this. And Stone um, uh, constructs it so well because in a court case, your job is to give a closing or opening statement where you sum up the points or you present the points initially so that you can connect everything together so that the jury can decide for themselves what's true and what isn't, right? And that's what you're seeing here. So it works for a movie as well. He doesn't have to necessarily adhere to the truth with every point that he's, that he's making. And he said, let's speculate. So by speculating already inherently, you know, subconsciously, it's not maybe not necessarily the truth, but if he strings it together um, well enough, you can go like, well, this sounds like the truth, you know? There, there's a thing, maybe one of my earliest cinephile tidbits was I remember watching the commentary track on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, yeah. where the director is George Roy Hill. Is that right? Yes, George Roy Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Where he talks about the final gun battle. And this mm-hmm. is what he said. He said, because I've always thought this was a brilliant thing and applies in a lot of different ways. He said he made really, really certain that every time Robert Redford fired his gun, that he had exactly six shots in that revolver, and then he would have to reload. And he was very careful about counting every bullet and reloading every time he ran out over and over again. (laughs) So that in the final sequence, in the very last moment, Robert Redford fires like 80 shots out of his revolvers and never reloads. And he's like, the idea was that I'm going to establish so clearly that I've been super careful that nobody is going to think about it when I blow it. That's what I think about when we get to the speculation at this point (laughs) is that not that actually Oliver Stone has been that careful throughout this whole thing. Right, right. But now like he's like tried to be at least have a fair amount of facts. And at this point we're just, but, but he's still kind of doing the same thing because he goes through with frame numbers of the Zabruder film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Showing exactly what happens, exactly what the timing is. Frame 193, the second shot hits Kennedy in the throat from the front. Frame 225, the president emerging from behind the road sign. You can see that he's obviously been hit, raising his arms to his throat. Of course, we see all this. Yeah. Conley, you will notice, shows no signs at all of being hit. He is visibly holding his Stetson, which is impossible if his wrist has been shattered. I don't know that that's true, by the way. Like, you know, yeah. in the second after you got shot, how long before your muscles release on the Stetson? Depending yeah. on, I don't know if that's true, you know, but he says it is true. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front. The music build is incredible. Yeah. The editing is credible. And then... Here we get to the moment, <laughs> again, the moment that is reproduced in Seinfeld as well. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, my head went back <laughs> to the left. Say that again. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. The president going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. Totally inconsistent with the shot from the depository. Again, back and to the left. 
And this is one of the most famous moments in film. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. There's no music. The music has all disappeared. And you are just silently hearing those words as you are repeatedly seeing a close-up of the actual Zapruder film footage of John F. Kennedy being killed. And it is horrible. Yeah. And brutal. It's chilling. And the first time I watched this in the theater, and because Stone goes in close-up, yeah. right? Because it's not it's not HD. It's Zapruder films, eight millimeter film, I think, eight millimeter. And or is it is it something well either I think it's eight. I think it's eight. I think it's and it so, might be it might be super eight, but I think it's eight millimeter. Okay. And so so obviously you're not gonna get a very clear picture. But when he goes in close up, seeing the head explode like it does is just so emotionally jarring. And then seeing Jackie's reaction, the explosion of fear and absolute um, mania, then crawling over and what the Secret Service person claims, trying to grab pieces of the brain. Although I will still contend that she was trying to get the hell off that damn, get the hell out of there because she feared for her life. Um, And seeing it all go down is horrible. And especially... If you're someone like me who grew up loving Jack Kennedy, was kind of taught to love Jack Kennedy in my home, watching this in 1991 as a 20 or 21-year-old and seeing what was happening, it really affected me and jarred me for many years afterwards about this stuff and about this situation and um, the explosion of the head. And I think this, I bet Stone, and I don't know if you have this in your notes, Steve, but I bet Stone had to fight the studio to let him keep that in there to let him do the close-up. And I bet he a lot of people were probably like, dude, nobody wants to see that. It's the president. People love Jack Kennedy. Why do you want to show it? And I think Stone uh, was right to do it this way because, in my opinion, because he wants you as the viewer to confront this once and for all. He wants you to see the fear of what can happen when, a, when, a, when agents of the government uh, want to assassinate the president and how they can do so um, and carry it out, and you see the death of it. You don't hear it in abstract. You don't see people reacting to it uh, in abstract. Uh, you know, they're on camera as it's happening off screen. You actually see it uh, multiple times. And he may have gone one back and to the left too far, but I think it was necessary in the long run to really drive the point home of what how horrific this event was. You know. So several things. One is I have nothing in my notes about how hard it was to get this in or get it past the rating board, but I have to assume that you're right, that this was this was a fight. Second thing is I think he absolutely goes one take too far and he is absolutely right to do so. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it is too far. It is like, I don't want to see this again. Please don't show it to me again. And then he forces you to look at it a third time. And the thing I was thinking about is like, there is nothing in an evidentiary sense that's maybe the first time I've used that word that points that that makes seeing that shot multiple times important in terms of judging the case. No, you you're know? right. You're right. But there is something in an emotional sense, particularly for the audience watching this movie, yes. that it do, it just places you in a more sympathetic, emotional spot to listen to what Jim Garrison is telling you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I also think it's just a brilliant piece of filmmaking that he uses that same birds flying off the roof of the building 
mm-hmm. after this as sort of the, to settle us at, at this moment. Yeah. And now we're going to get into the aftermath and the chaos in the aftermath. Patrolman Joe Smith rushes into the parking lot behind the picket fence. He smells gunpowder. Character produced credentials from his pocket that showed him to be Secret Service. And then we ask, where was Lee Harvey Oswald? And we hear that... Around 12.15, on our way out of the building to see the motorcade, Secretary Carolyn Arnold sees Oswald in the second floor snack room where he said he went for a coat. Someone sees two men in the window of the sixth floor. Now, again, this is where I go... How good are you at counting floors? You know, like, and when you look up, because things, we don't know that in the moment before the assassination that anything important is happening. Yeah. You know, so what you saw or didn't see that you reconstruct after the assassination, you know, it's not great evidence. If Oswald was the assassin, he was certainly pretty nonchalant about moving himself into position. Later, he told Dallas police he was in the second floor snack room. Probably told to wait there by his handler for a phone call. He probably told to wait there for a handler for a phone call. That is some serious speculation. Yeah, this when watching it now, because I mean, back then, of course, in my twenties, I'm like, yeah, yeah, the government, yeah, of course, you know, because uh, I had seen the Iran Iran Contra thing, the um, the hostages situation, uh, other stuff that had gone on Watergate, you know, learning about Watergate, all of that as I was getting older. So for me, the idea of a nefarious government trying to kill one of the people who's trying to make the world a better place, you can buy into that in your 20s uh, because those we've, I think a lot of us hold low-key conspiracy theories about the world, whether it's the Illuminati or the rich people or the uh, you know Soros or the Koch brothers, whatever you want to say. A lot of us have a little low-key conspiracy. We even have conspiracy theories at our jobs, right? Oh, my manager likes this person more or... They're trying to keep me down because of my color or my weight or my race or my uh, gender or however I identify. We all have these low-key conspiracy theories. you know. Whether they're true or not is a whole other conversation. And so to me, seeing that in my 20s, I bought. But seeing it now, there are moments where I'm like, okay, it's uh, that's you're going a little far here. We're not sure about that. And especially the scene where we get to when he's getting the soda and the police officer confronts him and the the his boss goes, president's been shot and runs off. Like those are those things to make it feel as if Oswald was a patsy and that is Garrison's point of view. So when you watch a movie like this, you've got to be careful not to just 100% buy what Garrison is delivering because there's a reason he cast Kevin Costner and there's a reason he, they wrote such a fantastic monologue based on some of the stuff Garrison said in the court. So you have to be careful not to just accept it all as truth and do your own research. Here's the thing I think, and I'm going to make a strange analogy, which is in general, and I'm sure you've had this conversation with friends. I've had this conversation with friends and someone says, so-and-so hurt me. They did this thing to me. They insulted me. They slighted me on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, because they don't like me, because they're trying to get me, because they want to do what, you know, they want to demean me or whatever it is. Right. And in general, the conversation is they just did that. They didn't do that at you. Right. That was just a thing that they, they, they people don't in general go out of their way to slight and hurt other people. Right. What we do far more often is accidentally slight and hurt other people without intention. And that is mostly true. I would say that's 80%, 90% of the time that is correct. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. The problem is there's 10% of the time, and I've had this experience where it took me a long time to realize like, oh no, they're really trying to hurt me. Like that's, you know, and that, and the same applies here, which is most of the time there is not a conspiracy to bring you down. 
except when there is. <laughs> right. You know, and we do know, as we talked about, the CIA and the FBI, yeah. they were involved in some crazy shit, which yeah. are conspiracies. Yeah, 100%. And that's the thing that in doing research for the show, a lot of people were like, well, why did they keep certain records uh, private? You know, because some of the records, uh, I think Donald Trump, of all people, signed that act that allowed some of the records to be revealed. Um, and as they say at the end of the movie, you know, some of these records won't be revealed till 2038 or 2039, something like that. But uh, uh, people think, oh, they were trying to hide something. Yes, but I don't think it, but what I've seen other people speculate, and I think I agree with is that they weren't trying to hide the conspiracy of killing John F. Kennedy. They were trying to hide all the other shit that they had yeah. done in all these other countries, Latin America, Africa, and, and, and overseas in Europe and what, and other areas to try to overthrow governments, overthrow leaders in order to help American business practices or American um, needs, national policy needs. Uh, and that's the thing that a lot of people don't want to accept is that when you study the history of international policy in the United States, it is littered with intelligence agencies going in and manipulating elections in other countries. You know, yet we think we uh, could we think we we have the moral high ground in these situations, and especially seeing it in the lately with and I don't want to get too deep into this, Steve, but the uh, reactions uh, on both sides to what's going on in in Israel with Israel and Hamas and Palestine and the Palestinians and Israelis, you're seeing people like, oh, the American government needs to do this and needs to do that, and it's like, well, the American government is going to always do what's best for America, and uh, usually that's not always something that vibes with what people like or feel is good, but we've done this in the past. And I don't think people want to accept how much we've done this. They don't want us to know how much we've done this and influenced. And some of those documents carry evidence. And it came out later when some of those documents were released about some of the stuff that we've done in other countries, which is really unsettling to read and, and consume. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's really hard is, is once you, start learning stuff and realize there is a bunch of behind the scenes stuff yeah. going on and conspiracies and, you know, secret plans and stuff like that. What's hard is not seeing everything as a conspiracy. Yes. Now. I know you're right. It's because really it isn't, yeah, yeah. but there is, I mean, but we have done shady stuff, but not everything <laughs> is shady stuff. <laughs> and I think the next point that Garrison goes into is just the nonchalance of Oswald. Oswald then leaves three cartridges neatly side by side in the firing nest. Wipes the rifle clear of fingerprints. Stashes the rifle on the other side of the lock. Sprints down five flights of stairs past witnesses, Victoria Adams and Sandra Stiles, who never see him. He shows up cool and calm on the second floor in front of Patrolman Baker. Going through the exit, which had the most police around it, rather than sneaking out. You know, like there are all these things that don't quite make sense. Of course, when he realized something had gone wrong and the president had been killed, he knew there was a problem. He may have even known he was the patsy, an intuition maybe. The president killed in spite of his warning, the phone call that never came. Perhaps fear now came to Oswald for the very first time. All contention. Yeah. You know, this is all just speculating. Yeah. Based on his theory of who Oswald is and what his theory of Oswald's participation. And it seems to me, by the way, Garrison's theory is that Oswald didn't fire that rifle at all. Yeah, at all. He's just kind of put into a certain position by his handler to be used as a patsy. It's very clear that that's Garrison's point of view is that Oswald was a patsy 
And that's yeah. what his that's what the presentation is there. I mean, and the way Gary Oldman plays him is so perfect as a guy who is freaking out about this whole situation, senses that he's being set up and doesn't know what to do, right? And leaves the job calmly past all the police officers, by the way, which is really weird, and then gets to his house and then takes off from his house, starts wandering around and then gets into a theater because he doesn't know what to do, you know? And and this is where the speculation of um of garrison for me goes a bit too far when he's like maybe he was called i mean this is the greatest amount of speculation but you know a sentence before he said well the guy the guy who works at the shoe store say a shoe store calls the police and whatever and there were 30 cars that showed up but logically so because this is the person who shot the president so every police officer wants to be there you know but why so well and, and there's the and there's the shooting of officer Tippett, which yeah, also has weird yeah. stuff around it yes but but this but this is again where i'm more on team garrison a little bit yeah why did so a guy calls in from the you know the shoe store yeah why do 30 why are they connecting him with the president at all at this right. moment i understand why they might connect him with officer Tippett. yeah but why are they thinking this is the guy who killed the president yeah yeah good point i've never understood that yeah. like did someone because no one at the book depository again from what garrison says yeah they all say, oh, yeah, he works here, and they, I saw him having a Coke. I didn't hear anyone of the book depository saying, I saw him with a rifle. Right. I saw him shoot the president. I am not resisting arrest. I am not resisting arrest. You know, they're just things that echo in my mind, and, like, I am not resisting arrest is one of them. Yeah. I don't know why that sentence, as he's struggling and yelling, I'm not resisting arrest. After he's punched a cop. The police have their man. It's already been decided. Washington. And then we have the shooting by Jack Ruby. Yeah. And and by the way, the shot of this and his fall and the handheld camera, it's all beautifully done filmically. But also what I think Garrison, oh sorry, what Stone does here, I think is really fascinating because the death of Lee Harvey Oswald is comparable to the death of Kennedy in the way he's filmed it. All right. I want to make sure people are clear. I'm not saying they're equal deaths in real life. I'm saying the way Stone frames it and films it, right? There's a Pruder film, as you said, Steve, when you described it so well, the music drops out and we hear him back into the left, back into the left. We see in close up, right? When um, uh, Oswald is shot, the build of the music ends as soon as Oswald is shot by Ruby and we see him with no music, slow motion fall to the ground in black and white, by the way, because they're speculating that Ruby might've been paid or might've been allowed to go into the back by one of his buddies on the police force. and his his uh, fall to death or his death he, essentially his assassination uh is also framed in a way that is without music so that you feel sympathy for him like you felt sympathy for the death of jack kennedy so it's a fascinating decision by stone when you look at the way he presented the death of oswald when he's when garrison is delivering his model who agrees for lee harvey oswald buried in a cheap grave under the name oswald nobody and watching the movie again, I felt a, you know, a shred of sympathy if it wasn't him. And it was, and that's, what's crazy about this JFK assassination is that there is enough questionable stuff for you to have a foothold to question what went on and question the characters. Cause he's right. The fact that they overnight, they had the narrative of this guy and that he was, you know, guilty and they were running with it rather than waiting to find out in a country where you're innocent until proven guilty waiting to find out what the actual particulars of all of this stuff was 
you know, how do you amass all the witness statements and be able to accurately say what was going on so quickly? So there's a number of questions in all of this for sure when you look at it. I think that's important. And I did, you know, like I said, I felt sympathy only because like I don't know what happened. And if he was a Patsy, what of a horrible way to go out to have your name um sullied and stained like that forever uh because they wanted to set you up for something here that you may not have done and, and you know and there are people those of you listening to us probably believe some of you believe that this was a lone gunman oswald was guilty and you know for that i totally understand and so but i'm just looking at it from my eyes and i felt sympathy for him in those moments you know lee harvey oswald a crazed lonely man who wanted attention and got it by killing a president was only the first in a long line of patsies in later years, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, men whose commitment to change and peace would make them dangerous to men who are committed to war would follow. It is so interesting because that is his point, right? When he says men who are committed to war, that harkens all the way back to the opening of the film with Dwight Eisenhower's speech about the military industrial complex. And then it becomes even more poetic. And, and I, my gut is this is more Oliver Stone than it is Jim Garrison. Although I don't know because I haven't read the transcript of the trial. Hmm. But he says, We've all become hamlets in our country, children of a slain father leader whose killer still possess the throne. A, I think that's a great line. I, I just think it's it's beautifully written. And and I think in a lot of ways it sums up, I, I wasn't alive when Kennedy was killed, but hmm. the feeling that led to the 60s, that led to the changes in the way we see our country, yeah. that idea of we've all become hamlets children of a slain father leader, I, that that really resonates, resonates to me, you know? Well, I think this is why, look, the 70s was a very interesting decade for a number of reasons, but the 60s, the tail end of the 60s, I'm sorry, the 60s themselves was a massive wake-up call for America. And the fact that we have not seen these kinds of assassinations ever again in a 10-year period here in this country, like we did during the 60s, I think uh, of these high-profile figures, of course, there's been accusations of Huey Newton being assassinated by the government, these kinds of things. But certainly high-profile figures like Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and um, John Kennedy being killed in quick succession, not to mention other lower-profile, so to a degree, uh, civil rights leaders in the 1960s. It is massive to look at that in a 10-year period and see how no other 10-year period in the history of our country has ever had anything like this with political leaders of such clout and power who are trying to change the system, you know, and you can't help but question whether how much of this was actually carried out by intelligence agencies and how much was just a bunch of random loners, which I don't fucking buy, to be honest with you. I don't. And it all culminates in, I think, the last really big one, which was not a political leader in in a sense, is is the um, the John Lennon assassination by Mark David Chapman. Now, that's an unhinged loner shooting someone who was leading a peaceful political movement. So you can make the correlation back to the 60s and arguably influenced by people in the 1960s to embrace this peace approach in the 70s. Um, and so it's, it's a fascinating bookend to um, what happened in the 60s here. And Steve, I know, for, I don't know how you feel about it. For me, I... That's something I've never been able to uh, reckon with or put in a, um, I don't know, put in a box that makes sense for me about what was going on without thinking that somehow the government or intelligence agencies were involved with assassinating so many political leaders 
seeking to change the establishment. Well, and this is what Stone says, or this mm. is what Garrison says. The ghost of John F. Kennedy confronts us with the secret murder at the heart of the American dream. He forces on us the appalling questions of what is our Constitution made? What is our citizenship and more our lives worth? What is the future of a democracy where a president can be assassinated under conspicuously suspicious circumstances while the machinery of legal action scarcely trembles? I think the writing's really good. And I think this is, I mean, I think this is, even though I've criticized or pointed out speculation and things that aren't facts, I think this fundamental question that Stone is asking, I think is one we have to ask over and over and over again, which is, I know that our government sometimes cuts corners. I know that our government needs to sometimes cut corners. Yeah, right. But of what is our constitution made? Yeah. You know, what is our citizenship and more our lives worth? These are questions we do have to continually ask. And then he goes from that into all of the suspicious deaths, many connected with this case, and many like you bring up of, of, you know, whether it's Huey Newton or, you know, Black Panthers or or all over the place, these kind of suspicious deaths. And then he brings up, why has the American public not seen the Sapruder film? Right. And this is the thing, and it is crazy to me that 60 years later, after many, many releases of documents, there's still shit we haven't seen. Yes. Right. We're not going to be seeing for a while. Yeah. We should take a moment, though, to talk about the Zapruder film just real quick. It was finally officially shown by guests. I mean, who can, do you know this story, uh, Steve, of who officially showed it? I do not. It was uh, Geraldo Rivera on March 6th of 1975 on ABC. The, back in that time, in the mid-70s, they had a show at night called Good Night America instead of Good Morning America. And uh, Rivera, who was the host, had on assassination researcher Robert Groden and Dick Gregory, activist Dick Gregory, wow. there to show the first ever U.S. network television showing of the Zapruder film uh, there in 1975, which sparked a whole new uh, conversation there uh, about the Kennedy assassination and sparked a bunch of new books about the Kennedy assassination uh, as well. And the Zapruder film, the, the section that you want for Kennedy is about 28.6 seconds or 26.6 seconds long. And they, Zabruder sold the film to CBS. Oh, sorry, CBS. I'm sorry, to Life Magazine, rather, uh, for $150,000 back then, which is which is about $1.4 million in our money nowadays. That's, you're immediately a millionaire, randomly, for shooting the assassination of the presidency, of the president there on a, on a Sunday, Saturday, whatever it was, afternoon there in Dealey Plaza. It's crazy how much there was a battle over this film and trying to get the evidence of it all. I am surprised if there's a conspiracy that they allowed this film to be out there. But many people have also used this film to prove that the single bullet theory is correct um, because they talk about uh, Connolly being in a jump seat, which affected where he was placed and that they claim that the JFK movie does not put Wayne Knight in the correct position that Connolly was in, which was over to the left a little bit more and higher up than Kennedy. So claiming that they are a portrayal of the single bullet theory isn't 100% correct, but other people counter that as well. So it's an interesting film that proves and can possibly disprove that there was a conspiracy through all of this. So it is a fascinating piece of evidence that I'm shocked we were allowed to get our hands on because it can prove that there was a conspiracy. 
And, and by the way, somebody, because I, I searched around because I assumed that mm. this was true, somebody has used this sort of, you know, Peter Jackson get back technology to up-res the Zapruder film. Wow. So there is a 4K version. What? That is much clearer. You can find it. Um, um, Damn you, Steve. Damn you. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't, it do, there's no miracle in it. You know what I mean? No, like, no, you, right. don't, you don't see anything that you, you couldn't see before, but, but it is much clearer than it was. <laughs> and also one more thing, Steve, about this Zapruder film, which I think is fascinating for us here on the cinephiles, you and I being massive fans of, of film. Some critics have claimed that because of the Zapruder film being made public, that it influenced um, the way violence was represented in, uh, in mainstream cinema uh, films that they claim oh. that because people were, people got to see the assassination of the president and had that available to them in that video, in that film, that it, it allowed the public's taste to see people being killed in violent ways on film. It allowed that possibility to exist and for filmmakers to add scenes like that to their films. Um, and I don't know how much of that is true, but certainly that's been the speculation of some people. And also some people claim that the Zapruder film also influenced citizen journalists the idea that citizens who are not members of a police force or investigative unit or a PI or whatever can do their own investigation. And certainly we've seen the fruits of that over the last few years, Steve, in a number of ways uh, on numerous programs and numerous books uh, and podcasts that have exposed certain crimes and gotten people off or had people convicted by the way they've done their own research on these crimes. So it's interesting that the interesting place this Pruder film has um, and it's copyright. Zapruder gave the copyright to the sixth floor uh, of the book depository in Dealey mm. Plaza. So the money goes straight to the book depository. Oh, wow. Which I thought was a really uh, magnanimous thing for him to do. I mean, after he sold it for a million, I'm sure he never thought he'd have a million his entire life. He probably smartly invested it and stayed. I don't know what happened to him, but maybe hopefully stayed in a good position financially for himself. And so he was able to donate the copyright. Uh, to deal to the book depository, so just fascinating stuff around this film for sure. And some people claim that there are frames missing mm. from the film, which maybe affects how you see the film. So it's an it's a fascinating historical artifact. For, for, first of all, what a weird claim to fame, you know? Like because <laughs> yeah, we know. all know the name Zapruder, you yeah, know, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just filming the thing. The second thing, and I hadn't thought about it until you brought up the citizen journalism thing, is that yeah. if the Kennedy assassination were to have taken place today, yeah, there would be hundreds of 4k videos oh my taken of the moment and as well as satellite footage and traffic cameras and you know yeah. every single data point in the world would be yeah. on you if if that happened today yeah yeah i submit to you that what took place on november 22nd 1963 was a coup d'etat its most direct and tragic result was the reversal of president kennedy's commitment to withdraw from vietnam the war is the biggest business in America worth $80 billion a year. That's got to be Stone. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't think anyone in 1963 was thinking the most important thing is the Vietnam War. Right. President Kennedy was murdered by a conspiracy that was planned in advance at the highest levels of our government. And it was carried out by fanatical and disciplined cold warriors in the Pentagon and CIA's covert operation apparatus, among them Clay Shaw here before you. I don't think he's proved any of this. <laughs> I, no. Well, it, it's like, the, you know, what's the, the absence of evidence is not evidence. Right. You know what I mean? Like him saying, like, look at all this fucked up crazy stuff. Yeah, 
That's you're right. But that doesn't prove that these particular people, Clay Shaw in particular, were involved in it. And it doesn't say, okay, was did Johnson know? Did Johnson not know? Did Jay Gerhuder? You know, it's like you need the receipts. You know, yeah, and it's the same thing with conspiracies today is that you'll hear a conspiracy theory and maybe they do point out some crazy stuff, yeah. but it's like, okay, show that that particular person, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, we have today, this is about today's conspiracies. Yeah. We can see everybody's text messages and emails. So when there's a trial, you see all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, if you have a conspiracy where so-and-so was supposed to be involved in something, and I'm not going to point out any particular one of these conspiracy theories. Well, there would be evidence of them communicating about that thing. Mm. You know, like you have to connect it to the people you're talking about. And that's what Jim Garrison is totally failing to do. Right. In his speculation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Garrison is talking about all of the documents that have been sealed and kept from the American public. And I love this line. He says, I'm in my early 40s. So I'll have shuffled off this mortal coil by then. But I'm already telling my eight-year-old son to keep himself physically fit. So that one glorious September morning in the year 2038, he can walk into the National Archives and find out what the CIA and the FBI knew. And of course, I want to find out all this information, too. I want to know exactly what we knew at the time. I absolutely want to know that. But I also think that it's kind of important to point out that the fact that the government did withhold information is not necessarily proof that there was a coup d'etat, that Johnson is part of this whole plan. And I, and I wanted to kind of talk about yeah. some of the reasons why the government wanted to cover some of this up. And the biggest one is we're right in the height of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Like, literally, we just came as close to nuclear war, to destroying the planet as we ever have in history. And so yeah. anything that would affect the relationship with the Soviet Union is something you got to be scared of. And mm-hmm. since if Oswald was, in fact, a spy sent by our government as a double agent to the Soviet Union. And if these documents would reveal that, well, that would increase tension with the Soviet Union. So even if even if Oswald, even if he's a lone gunman, yeah. but he also was a spy, well, then that would reveal it. Like there's so many other things that, like one of them was and this comes from that book that I read about the assassination, mm. which which its point is that the mob did it. But it also yeah. goes a lot into Cuba and the idea a all of the plans to assassinate um, Castro, which we knew about. But then there are other things which have come out recently, which is that Bobby Kennedy had a plan to have a coup in Cuba and was working with someone inside the Cuban government at the yeah. time. And so any so let's say that Cuba is responsible for killing the president. It had nothing to do with our government. In order to reveal that, we might have had to reveal our plots to assassinate Castro and the fact there's a current guy in the Cuban government who's trying to take over the government that we are working with. And so even if our government's not responsible for killing Kennedy, we still might want to cover it up because we can't let that out. Because if we let that out, it affects our relationship with Cuba. But more importantly, it affects our relationship with the Soviet Union. Well, and I'll go even one step further. Well, it affects the relationship with our own citizens. And that would affect our relationship because people would be, you know, really surprised at the level. And this is not nowadays, right? We have to remember this. 1960s is not 1970s Watergate. Everything post-1970s is questioning your government 
to its core up until today. We still have that today, Steve. People questioning the motives of the government, no matter what your political bent is. People question, are they withholding information? Who's hiding stuff? What nefarious stuff are they doing behind the scenes? How are they making these deals? Are they you know, rearranging coups? Are they putting people in power for their own benefit? And that none of that was really uh, mainstream talked about until the 70s. So in the 1960s, it makes sense that they want to hide this stuff because we still believe at the time in American exceptionalism, that we are the shining beacon on the hill showing everybody that it is possible to come to this country to find a better way of life. And if if it was to come out that we have been like um, masterminding coups in other countries for our own political benefits, our own financial benefits to make it even more stark, and we are pushing certain um, people into power because we think that's best for the world, that turns us into, in essence, a dictatorial power in the entire global scale. And there's a lot of people in America who might not have been cool with that in the 1960s, and it would have caused you know, riots even more so than the riots we got later on in, in the country. So yes, I hear you on the global side of things. Of course, obviously, you don't want to overplay your hand, and you don't want to show too much when you're doing these things in other countries, especially with the United Nations being stationed in New York. But the second thing is you certainly don't want your citizens to have questions about their government and question whether they should be even following their government uh, and maybe even talk about overthrowing their government, which would be insane. So we got two big reasons why we don't want to reveal things. We don't want to reveal things on the global sense in terms of the Cold War and the Soviet Union and our allies and all those people. And we don't want to reveal it on a domestic sense. And I actually think that this applies to basically every single scenario you can come up with about how Kennedy was shot. Lone gunman, it's just Oswald, but he was a spy in Russia. Well, we don't want to reveal that. The Cubans right. killed Kennedy, but we still have stuff going on in Cuba. That rela- relates to Russia. We don't want to reveal that. Yeah. If the mob killed Kennedy, well, you don't want to show the involvement between the mob and the CIA, which is really well documented. So you don't want to reveal that. If it's, It, it could be that there are people within the government, like let's say it is Guy Bannister working with Clay Shaw and mm-hmm. David Ferry, and they killed him. And so- it is people connected to the government. Well, the, our government doesn't want to reveal that either to yeah. the Soviet Union or to the American people. So the fact that they're withholding documents doesn't necessarily mean that Lyndon Johnson had Kennedy killed. And we should say, officially as a podcast, <laughs> that yes. we don't necessarily support withholding documents or withholding the truth no. or, or not being transparent. But not everything is a one-to-one. And not everything is a generalization. So you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Now, could they have poured through all the documents and had like a few people, a team, pull aside what was applied to Oswald, what wasn't? Sure, but it would have come out with a lot of black streaks and like two or three words. And in the end, it wouldn't have really solved anything. And so um, putting it this far away in 2038, which I think is still the, the year it's supposed to all happen, or 2039, I don't know necessarily that that will happen. And as as Garrison says in the movie through Costner's uh, lips, that they're just going to keep kicking it down the road. And that's very possible because once you open a Pandora's box of showing the nefarious things you've been doing as a country in other countries, violating the sovereignty, influencing elections, and certainly that's something a lot of people are complaining about nowadays, um, it starts to erode your status in the world. And I can't imagine anybody who's in charge of the United States would be okay with uh, that being um, brought out because that happened other under Republican and Democratic administrations. There's no 
clean uh, administration or clean party that was not involved with doing that kind of stuff overseas. I mean, if you go to some of my favorite fictional presidents, mm. Jed Bartlett being among them. Yes. He covered stuff up. Yep. You know, like, like, and if you or I were sitting in the Oval Office, I am 100% certain there would be some shit that would go down where we would go, yeah, we can't ever let that out. You know? That's because how do you think you know what's going on with the government when you're like barely... <laughs> How can I say this? I want to say this respectfully, but correctly. And that is until you are actually in that position of power or close to that position of power and have access to the briefings, have access to the real minutia of what's going on with all these issues and all these situations in different foreign countries, it's very difficult to say, well, they should do this and they should do that with any real kind of credibility. Now, people who've studied certain regions, of course, Credibility is there because they've got the experience. But, you know, most people in this country aren't sitting here and like studying a, a subject or a topic or a battle or an, a region of the world all the way down to the nook and crannies of it all to be able to offer a really knowledgeable idea of what we should and shouldn't do, you know. And so it doesn't mean criticism isn't allowed. Of course, it's allowed and it should be there to call out certain things. But we also should take a look, have a little more perspective that. Being in that position of power, we don't know what any of us would do when confronted with all the information we're confronted with, because you can never satisfy all the people all the time as the leader of a country. It's funny, and now I'm going to make exactly this point that you made a few minutes ago, which is, and we also need to keep fighting for the truth. 100%. We also need to push our government because sure. we we can't just trust them. Oh, you guys must know what you're doing. Right. We can't do that either. And so there's a balance. And this is, you know, it goes back to complexity. It always goes yeah. back to this is not simple stuff. And if you think it's simple stuff, well, <laughs> you're going to end up believing in conspiracy theories and good guys and bad guys and all these ways that this stuff doesn't work. Yeah. But right now, this is where Jim Garrison and I would say Kevin Costner starts to take it to a more emotional place. I have here some $8,000 in these letters sent, sent to my office from all over the country. Quarters, dimes, dollar bills from housewives, plumbers, car salesmen, teachers, invalids. These are people who cannot afford to send money, but do. I think Costner's really good in this scene, by the way. This is him trying to win the Oscar, bro. There's the, this, the, the, the whole monologue leads to this moment where he starts talking about Hamlet and fallen kings and gets emotional, starts crying a little bit. This is all Costner at this point trying to get himself nominated for a Best Actor Oscar. And damn if he doesn't uh, deliver it. You know what I'm saying? Why? Because they care. Because they want to know the truth. Because they want the country back. Because it still belongs to us. As long as the people have the guts to fight for what they believe in. And this is where you start to see the cracks, the emotional cracks in Costner's performance. Yeah. Or in Garrison. And it was interesting because what Stone says is that he had never wrote this for Jim Garrison to get emotional at the end of the speech. <laughs> well, of course he, not. He just wrote a speech. Yes. And that Costner and that, and again, these are the myths of making movies, yeah. is that he says that Costner had no intention of becoming emotional. This is the part maybe I don't believe, um, but that it just came over him as he's doing the speech. I kind of, I'm kind of with you where I go like, this is his Oscar moment, you know? Listen, a hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> these are actors. And although they may believe in this stuff and champion this stuff, 
at the end of the day, an actor's ego is always going to win out. And, uh, you know, especially one that's trying to achieve a certain level of notoriety or status in the business. So, yeah. The truth is the most important value we have, because if the truth does not endure, if the government murders truth, if, it, if we cannot respect the hearts of these people, and this is not the country in which I was born in, and it's certainly not the country that I want to die in. Oliver Stone describes this as Jim Garrison's or Costner's Jimmy Stewart moment from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, I can make that connection. Yeah, sure. Tennyson wrote, authority forgets a dying king. This was never more true than for John F. Kennedy, whose murder was probably one of the most terrible moments in the history of our country. And I'm just going to say it again. I think Costner's so good, and I'm emotional watching Mm -hmm. this scene at this point. It really gets to me. 100%. That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Do not forget your dying king. And he's right on the edge crying at this moment. Do not forget your dying king. Yeah, it's it's really well uh, done. Show this world that this is still a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Nothing as long as you live will ever be more important. It's up to you. When he says it's up to you, he's not eyeballing the lens exactly. But it's real close. He's just off the lens. He's like right off on like the mount where you put the put the filter on or something. I mean, it's like right at the edge, almost looking right at camera. That is a 23-minute long speech. Yes. 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 Incredible. Well edited, well performed, well written. And you can't help but see that when it first came out, it'd be like, maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. I mean, this is a movie with two 20-minute speeches. Mm-hmm. Almost no movies in the history of movies have 20-minute yeah. speeches. This one has two. Both of them are 100% entertaining and evolving. Yeah. Both of them are highly speculative. Yes. <laughs> and use all sorts of Oliver Stone filmmaking technique to reinforce all of this speculation. And I am completely involved in it like it's only in sitting back from this movie that i go oh wait what does that mean but emotionally i'm fucking in well you you know how i said earlier there's a pruder film some people claim this is the beginning of citizen journalism or exposing people to violence uh, on film i think these two monologues the donald sutherland monologue is uh mr x and this costume monologue is the birth of youtube in my opinion it is the birth of explainer videos on YouTube, because you can watch explainer videos on YouTube right now that are just as engaging and speculative combined with facts about situations, for better or worse. And you could just clip this out and put it up on YouTube. And if if no one had never seen it before, it'd probably get a million views, if not more, because it's so well shot, so well constructed, so well written. That by the end, you are affected by what's been in there, either positively or negatively, whether you believe it or don't believe it, to have a reaction to it. And so, to me, I think this film is, in essence, the birth of YouTube videos. That is such an interesting point. (laughs) And I I keep going like, and is that a good thing? Well, I mean, that's that's right. But but Steve, I mean, because like you said, this is not done. And you you said this, I think, in the first part. Or the second part, whatever we got to 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 Donald Sutherland, that like 
you tell students not to do these things. Don't do this, yeah. Right, but great filmmakers know all the rules and know when to break them. And certainly Stone, as you pointed out, which I had never thought about until you said it, put two massive monologues in a three-hour movie um, that are incredibly engaging and both do the job that Stone intended, which is to make you question the government at the time, uh, make you question who was involved in this possible conspiracy, and make you feel the death of President Kennedy and the tragic nature of it all, all over again, both times. So yeah. I think it's fascinating. And not make it feel like overkill, which I think is really difficult to do if you're going to put two massive monologues like this in one movie. I'm going to say something really dumb, and maybe I'll edit it out of the movie. But I think great creative people are people who can say, hold my beer. <laughs> it's just that like so you know someone says listen you can't do a 20 minute monologue you can't do a movie about the kennedy assassination where you're faking all this footage you can't do that yeah really hold my beer <laughs> you know like i'm gonna show well and i think the, the positive version of hold my beer right exactly right. like i'm gonna show you that sort of like that's not you don't know no way come on i'm gonna show you that i can do that right um and so the speech is over. There's some beautiful camera work, by the way, at the end of his speech yes. and coming in when the jury comes in, the jury comes in. It's the classic scene of do you have a verdict? New Orleans, Louisiana, March 1st, 1969. We, the jury, find the defendant, Clay Shaw, not guilty. Which they did in under an hour in yeah. real life. Yeah. Which what's what's funny about it, I I don't know how you feel in this moment in the movie, is that the intellectual part of myself goes, well, that's of course the exact right decision. He should right. be found not guilty, but emotionally from where I am in the movie, it's like this huge tragedy, Yeah, you know, because I'm with, even though again, intellectually, I find all sorts of problems with Garrison's argument emotionally. He's totally won me over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's a reaction around the room and we do hear from one of the jurors that they did believe there was a conspiracy, but not that Clay Shaw was a part of it necessarily. Right. And of course the reporters run up to Garrison. We understand that the morning paper will call for your resignation, that you're unfit to hold office, that you ruined Clay Shaw's reputation. Mr. Garrison, are you going to resign? Hell no. I'm going to run again. And I'm going to win. Thank you. Which he did. Yep. Who do you plan to persecute next, Mr. Garrison? If it takes me 30 years to nail every one of the assassins, then I will continue this investigation for 30 years. I owe that not only to Jack Kennedy, but to the country. And they run to Clay Shaw, who says, I'm going to go home and cook some etouffee. <laughs> and then we get text on the screen describing... What happened? It says in 1979, Richard Helms, director of operations in 63, admitted under oath that Clay Shaw worked for the CIA. Yeah. Okay. So that's one piece. Right. We find out that Jim Garrison was elected uh, to the Louisiana Court of Appeals and that he is the only person to create a public prosecution in the Kennedy killing. Yeah. And then Oliver Stone talks about Vietnam. Do you know what? I don't think I said this before. What, what Oliver Stone's obsession with Vietnam makes me always makes me think of. Was that? He just, it's it's uh, to John Goodman in Big Lebowski. <laughs> Is that he just whatever you're talking to him about? He always just goes back to those boys who lost their lives in Quezon and you know Oliver. <laughs> it's nothing to do with Vietnam, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hundred percent. But but this is what Oliver was, and and you know, and Oliver Stone represented baby boomers at that time who had lived through the Vietnam era and had served in the in Vietnam as well and were affected by it, or had people they knew affected by it in a negative way. So he was speaking to them uh, yeah. in in his movies, Platoon, 
Between Heaven and Earth, this film, Born on the Fourth of July, this was all his way of like speaking out because he was the only filmmaker. There were, I guess, there were other Vietnam era Vietnam films, but he was the only filmmaker that was capturing the pop culture zeitgeist about this subject and delivering phenomenal films. Um, really uh, chastising the government for getting us involved in Vietnam. You know, so it's clear by putting that text up at the end, he is once again making it clear that he is uh, angry about what happened in Vietnam to him and to others who who went and served uh, there. And the final thing we see is what is past is prologue, dedicated to the young in whose spirit the search for truth marches on. Yeah, yeah. And that, John, is the end of JFK. Yeah. <laughs> four parts and however many hours <laughs> later we got to the end um a few things on post-production uh it was a super fast post they finished shooting in august for chris for a christmas release <sighs> and they were editing like 24 hours a day jesus and i just go like this this movie this is an editing master class yeah, i mean just the number of cuts yeah i don't understand how you could have cut this film ending in august and release it at Christmas Day with this kind of editing. I just, that, and they're cutting on film. I mean, like, you know, anyone who's out there who's an editor who's cut on film knows how hard that is and how slow. Yeah. And I wonder if he was, like, editing as they went along. Like, he had a team of, of editors. Of course they are. Absolutely. Editing. Yeah. So it's just fascinating. But then Stone's got to also look over those edits, right? So it's just like, it's a lot of work to well, be able to be done by August and have this out by December. Jesus. So, so it is absolutely stand, standard practice that the day you wrap your first day of shooting, mm-hmm. you get the dailies in the next day and they go to the editor and the editor starts editing. That is, that is sort of normal in a Hollywood movie. Right. The, the difference is, it's like if I shot a basic movie and it's a love story and I have the scene where the characters made and the scene on their first date. Once I shot that scene, I have all the footage I need for that scene to edit it. Yeah. That's not true in this movie right. because there are, every single scene has shots from things shot in the reconstruction at Dealey Plaza there, you know, you're constantly intercutting with other scenes. Yeah. And so just because you shot the scene where Clay Shaw talks to um, Jim Garrison in the office on Easter Sunday, you don't have all the other things you're intercutting with that scene. Right. So you can't actually really start editing until you get all the footage you need, you know? Yeah. Um, the editors, by the way, there's Joe Husing and Pietro Scalia, and they also brought in this guy, Hank Corwin, who had no feature experience at all, but was a commercial guy. And Stone mm-hmm. wanted him, he said, because of his chaotic mind, and he no, had no idea of how to cut a feature. Wow. Um, oh, and the other thing that made this even harder, I, I was wrong. I said something completely wrong a moment ago, which is I said they were cutting on film. Yeah. They were not cutting on film. Oh, okay. Because I'd forgotten this, because they shot on 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, 8 millimeter, and videotape, none of those. So, the way you cut film is with tape and a razor blade, and you cut the pieces and you put them together, but you can't tape together a piece of 35 millimeter film to a piece of 8 millimeter film. <laughs> That's not going to work in the machine. So, instead, what they did, they transferred all their footage to three quarter inch video mm-hmm. and they edited on videotape and then later conformed all the negative. Wow. To do that's that's even harder the way that they did this. God, and, and we said this at the very beginning, but there was controversy long before the film started shooting. Controversy during the shoot and controversy during post production. There were constant articles being written about this film, and no one had seen any of it. Yeah, of course. The, you know, you saw that they were already lining up uh, their um, counters to what 
this film was going to tell because it was it was already released that it was based on Jim Garrison's book. So the people who had, you know, written uh, a number of negative things about Jim Garrison's pursuit of this immediately ran to these um, uh, uh, what do you newspapers and magazines to try to give their side to counter Garrison's point of view because there are some people who are just as adamant that it was Oswald and are just as adamant that Garrison uh, pushed a bunch of bullshit as there are people who 100% believe that there was a conspiracy. So both sides are very adamant in their beliefs about this because both sides think it's important to the the country that the truth be out there, their version of the truth be out there as accepted truth about what happened. There was an article in the Post, Washington Post, Mm. before the movie came out titled, On the Set of Dallas in Wonderland. Um, George Will, also writing for the Washington Post, who's a well-known uh, columnist, yeah. wrote, called Oliver Stone a man of technical skill, scant education, and negligible conscience. <laughs> and this changed what Oliver Stone's job as a director had to be, is that when we started moving towards the release of the film, yeah. he was on every talk show, every news show, basically putting out fires and framing how the film would be uh, received. Yeah. The movie comes out, again, very controversial in terms of reactions. Jack Valenti, the head of the Motion Picture Association at the time, compared JFK to Triumph of the Will. Wow. The Lenny Riffenstahl pro-Nazi anti-Semitic film. Jesus. But it's interesting to note (laughs) that Jack Valenti, do you know what his job was in 1963? No. No. He was the media liaison for the Kennedy administration and was in Dallas and in the motorcade at the time of the assassination. He was on the plane when LBJ was sworn in. Huh. Isn't that crazy? Wow, that is crazy. (laughs) By the way, here's another bit of odd, an odd tidbit. Yeah. The dude who defeated Jim Garrison for the uh, uh, district attorney job in 1973 is someone named Harry Connick Sr., (laughs) <laughs> the father of Harry Connick Jr. Wow. And he wrote his own book on the Kennedy assassination, tearing up Garrison and tearing up the film JFK. Wow. So the film opened at fifth in fifth place mm-hmm. uh, and everyone goes, this is a flop. But yeah. the next week it's up in fourth place and then it's up in third place. It ended up making $200 million worldwide. Yep. Huge hit. Uh, for the Oscars, it was nominated for picture, director, Supporting actor for Tommy Lee Jones, yep. who lost to Jack Palance from City Slickers. It's tough to argue that. It's tough, I mean, you got to love like Jack. Palance. I mean, he's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was also nominated for screenplay for Score, uh, which lost to Beauty and the Beast. Uh, sound, which lost to Terminator 2. The two things it won for are cinematography and editing. That makes editing. Uh, editing's a hundred percent had to win and cinematography is really great. This, by the way, is the year of silence of the lambs, which won picture director screenplay right. um, and all, and the actor nominations. Yeah. Uh, Jim Garrison died on October 21st, 1992. So less than a year after the movie came out hmm. and, and the movie really did galvanize interest in the Kennedy assassination and force the government to release all sorts of documents that hadn't been previously released. Yeah, in 1993, which is, uh, of course, a, a year or two after the film came out, uh, Frontline did, and I love Frontline on PBS, did a breakdown of this, of the Kennedy assassination, and talked about it. And they discovered a photo, a group photo that had been taken eight years before the assassination that showed David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald 
in the New Orleans Civil Air Patrol in 1955. So mm. the photo shows both. Now they're on opposite sides of the photo, and a couple of guys are making some food or doing whatever in the middle. So they're not like standing next to each other arm in arm or any, having any kind of conversation. They're just in the photo. So it does not mean necessarily that they knew each other really well and they were all a part of this, but it does leave give credence to the people who said that they had seen them together back, you know, way before the assassination and part of the uh, New Orleans Civil Air Patrol. So there was that that was released uh, there. Um, and Edward Haggerty, who was the judge in 1992 in an interview, the judge who we saw in the film being portrayed by that actor, uh, he stated um, that, quote, I believe that Shaw was lying to the jury during the trial. Of hmm. course, the jury probably believed him, but I think Shaw put a good, a good con job on the jury. So, uh, and there are people who defend Shaw nowadays, even now there was a Newsweek article, I think earlier this year, when we were talking about the 60th anniversary coming up, which of course, uh, we just passed, um, it, where they defended Shaw and they went from the point of view that Shaw was being persecuted because he was homosexual and that Shaw had actually contributed a lot of incredible things to the French quarter and to New Orleans. And there's a plaque still of his name up there for all the stuff that he did. So, there are people who defend Clay Shaw from that area of the country um, from this attack. So it's a very interesting um, um, film and very interesting um, um, conspiracy assassination story that still lives on to this day and still carries water and people still have an incredible amount of interest. And we'll see with the new documents what comes out um, because, as I said, in the 2022 documents, a lot that was revealed was about the intelligence agency stuff we were doing overseas. So um, we'll see if these documents, the rest of them, ever see the light of day and what they tell us. You know. Do you think they're going to tell us the answer? No. I <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think it's going to be more of people are going to, because especially nowadays, Steve, we know this, people are going to read into the documents what they want to read into the documents to support their narrative. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be the rare person who comes in open-minded even though they have a point of view on it and has their point of view changed by the documents. But uh, that could happen, but I imagine it'll be more just splitting down the middle type of thing. So before we get to our final thoughts, yeah. as those of you listening know, if you're a supporter on Patreon, you have the opportunity to sometimes ask questions oh, yes. uh, about a film. And we have a question here from Jeff Cook, oh. who says, imagine you are tasked with preventing the assassination, but your only power is to take one person off the board. You get to choose someone to be placed in place, say, in a nice New Zealand prison from 1960 to 1964 with no communication ability. Who do you choose? Okay, do I get to replace this person myself? Uh, sure. Then I would replace the driver of the car, uh, and I would drive the car and drive it super fast down that area so that they couldn't um, shoot him in the triangulation of crossfire. Uh, if I'd known the Kennedy assassination was happening, and by the way, there are people who question whether the route was actually changed. There's evidence to prove that it was. There's evidence to prove that it wasn't. So if the driver, which I've low key used to think was involved in the conspiracy theory, I don't think now, but I would replace the driver, sadly put him in a New Zealand prison for however long they said in the, in the question, but I would take control and just drive the car in a weird way so that you couldn't get a triangulation of crossfire on Kennedy and save his life. That's what I would do. I think that's very smart. I, my first thought was, well, I'll just put Kennedy in New Zealand. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then nobody can kill it. I don't, know if, I don't know if that works out. I, I, I was thinking through this. I like your plan a lot. My question would be like, can I interrogate this person? Ooh. Good because point. then the person I would grab is Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. Because well, not because I think that he's a lone gunman, but because he seems to factor in every conspiracy theory in one way or another. Hmm. Like there's some, he has to know something more about what's involved. So that yeah. that's probably my choice if I can interrogate him. Yeah. I like that idea. So I feel like, like Jim Garrison and maybe Oliver Stone, we have lived lifetimes <laughs> in the Kennedy assassination. And I'm it's, I'm struggling to come up with my final thoughts. And here, here's what I'll say. Yeah. You know how in sports, and you're much more of a sports guy than me, that someone can come along and have a season or a fight or a particular moment oh. where they are the best in the world. Even though they're never going to be on any, this isn't Babe Ruth, this isn't Muhammad Ali, this isn't, you know, whatever. They're never going to be that person. But for one moment, they are. Mm -hmm. I think Oliver Stone in this moment is an incredible filmmaker. Yeah. I, I, I just think the understanding of how film works, and I can't say it any better than that. For people out there who've made films, maybe this will make sense to you. But the emotional understanding of how film actually works on someone who is watching it. Oliver Stone got it on such a deep way in making this film, regardless of whether or not I agree or disagree with the film that he chose to make or, wh or whether this is true or not true. It has nothing to do with it. I'm just talking about technique wise. This guy at the top of his game at this moment is right up there with all of the great filmmakers. I don't put him up there. I would never put him on any of my lists as my as the greatest filmmakers of all time. Yeah. But at this moment, he might be there. That's the that's my first thought, just in terms of technique. Okay. The second thing I would say is about truth, you know, is that I am a human who I want to find the truth. I'm really interested in the truth and I'm not interested in the easy truth. You know what I mean? Like right. I, you know, like I tend to want to look a little bit deeper, find out a little bit more, find out, you know, it's like, I don't just take things for granted. And the, the frustration that I feel in this film, in this story, in the whole, everything around the Kennedy assassination yeah. is I have to continually remind myself there is no truth here. I can't, I can't, I mean, there is a truth. Yeah. There yeah. in fact is someone who killed Kennedy and th it happened and there is a truth, but I'm never going to get to know it. I'm never going to get there. Yeah. The, the other thing is, and this is what you brought up, but I, I, I'll, I'll say as well is just the, how we operate in the world. I think this movie in, in the deep analysis of this movie is a good lesson for all of us in the complexity of the world, mm. the, how easily it is to fall into believing conspiracy theories based on our worldview, how easy it is to jump to conclusions quickly without taking the proper steps. And, and this movie hopefully is a lesson to go like, wait, slow down. Am I being the conspiracy? Theory? What do I really know? How do I know it? And, and at least start with that. And the final thing is that, this is also a movie about one of these important events, one of the great events in our history that absolutely fundamentally changed the world. I don't know if the 60s would have gone the way they went without the assassination of Kennedy. Mm. And without the assassination of Kennedy, I don't know that Nixon becomes president. And I don't and, and while I don't agree with all all of the stuff that Oliver Stone says about Vietnam, I don't know that Vietnam would have been the same if Kennedy had been alive. And if Vietnam hadn't been the same, well, then maybe the 70s aren't the same. Maybe Watergate doesn't happen. Maybe Reagan's not elected president. Maybe the Cold War ends earlier or maybe the Cold War doesn't end at all. Like like the 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 pivot point of this moment in history, both factually and emotionally is 
huge. And, and the mythology around John Kennedy and how we carry that with us. And maybe now that, you know, this is 60 years ago. And so maybe that the weight of it has gone down a little bit, but I don't think the importance of it will ever go down. And that, and so for all of these reasons and for the joy of getting to talk about all of this with you, yeah. this has been an incredible exploration for me. Yeah. Um, my echo right off the bat, your final thought with my first thought for the final thoughts, I would absolutely agree with you, Steve. It has been a blast to talk about this film with you and break it down and go step by step and hear from our uh, listeners as well who had questions about uh, what we were talking about and have certainly been very um, uh, active, shall we say, for lack of a better term, on our social media, giving us their points of views on JFK of the film and on these conspiracy theories as well. So it's been a very, I think this is one of the most unique string of episodes that we've ever done for so many reasons and the foundation is an incredible film that still holds up from oliver stone now i don't buy into the stuff like george will and other people say oh it's this film is sacrilegious film, whatever you can have your feelings but our job on the cinephiles is to talk about a great film and this is a great film and analyze it and break it down and that's what we've done because we look at it from the film point of view not the historical document point of view that's our job on this podcast. And yes, we'll speak about the things that are, um, that we, that we have questions about historically, things that are not historically accurate or can't be proven. Of course, we'll touch on that and, and mention it, but overall it's to judge the film and rewatching it. Now, all these years later, it still carries the same power within it, but in different ways, which I think speaks about the enduring quality of the film is, is, you know, and I've said this since the dawn of the podcast is that great films are films. You can go back to at different times in your life and get completely different things from them, yet the effect of them are still just as potent for you as they were the first time. And this film, to me, now watching it this time around, I admire the artistry, and I think also because we've done our show, there is so much to explore and enjoy here from uh, from a filming point of view, from a directing point of view, from an editing point of view, a cinematography point of view, a symbolism point of view. There is so much going on in this film to savor um, overall that still holds up for me as an, as a cinephile, but also I think the film is a fascinating, um, uh, topical piece on conspiracies and how we can fall into these holes, as you said, Steve, of conspiracy theories. And I go a step further. It's fascinating. The same people who probably embraced the Kennedy conspiracy theory as young baby boomers in the early 1990s might be the same people who became uh, MAGA or Trump supporters who are embracing the conspiracies now that they claim are going on against Trump. And of course, we've seen uh, articles written about how far left and far right people found a kinship with each other because they believe the government with these COVID vaccines was trying to uh, uh, control citizens and inject certain things into citizens to uh, against their will. So we see that the film still is resonant in real um, world ways of what's going on in our, in our world. But as a film itself, it still carries the power of a master filmmaker who was called at a time at the height of his powers to tell this story. And you can't deny the courageous gutsiness that Stone had to tell this story and to bring all of his talent, every iota and drop of his talent to get this film right. You know, this is on par with James Cameron's Titanic, with any number of uh, Lawrence of Arabia from David Lean, the best film from every filmmaker you can ever 
discuss is in the league. JFK is in the league with those films. And I think that speaks volumes about how great this film still is and will be for uh, many decades to come, many generations to come who discover it all over again. So that is what we think of JFK. (laughs) Obviously, this has been a really long journey. I hope you enjoyed going along on this journey with us. And of course, I bet you have your own thoughts. How do you separate fact from fiction? Mm. Where do you think Jim Garrison is on the money? Or do you think he's not? What do you think happened to John F. Kennedy? And maybe you even want to answer the question we got from our patron, Jeff Cook, on who you would send off to New Zealand in 1960 to 1964. We'd love to hear all of your thoughts about this. On our Facebook page, you can do a search for The Cinephiles. You can also go to Twitter or X, if you will, for Cine underscore Files, the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. If you haven't subscribed to the show, please do. You could subscribe on all of the podcast platforms. Apple Podcasts is, of course, the biggest one. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review for us there. If you're on YouTube, leave your comments. We love seeing them. And if you want to support the show or maybe ask questions to be used on an upcoming podcast, you could do so on patreon.com slash the Cinephiles, where you can also listen to our shorts our watch-alongs, and take part in the advisory board if you want to be up at that level. And we'd definitely love to see you there. We've got a meeting coming up. And if you want to buy or stream JFK along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, you can find them on cinephiles.net. And if you want to reach me, it's SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how would people reach you? You can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Outlaw Nation on Twitch. Uh, and please come and follow me on Twitch. I will... I have connected my uh, PS5 to a couple of things on my desk, so I will be back Twitch streaming uh, very soon. So come and follow me there. And if you want to follow everything I've going on on my YouTube channel where I do a number of reviews and host shows like The Geek Buddies, The Hot Mic, The Jedi Way, and other stuff, uh, trailer reactions, what have you, head on over to youtube.com slash John Roca says, help me get over 50,000 subscribers. I'm at 31,000. I know we have hundreds of thousands of people who download our show. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel and subscribe to the Cinephiles YouTube channel, which we have 10,000 followers, but we subscribers. We'd love to get to 20, 30, 40, 50,000 by the end of next year. So please come and follow us there as well. Here, here. <laughs> I agree a hundred percent. And I think that is it for this week. We will be back with our special holiday movies yeah. coming up very soon, right here on the Cinephiles. Cinephiles.